Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and we have another great interview in store for you guys today. This is one I'm very much excited to finally share with everyone. I'm talking with Alina Chan. She's a researcher at the Broad Institute, and she's also the co-author of a book called Viral. You can go grab your copy on Amazon or any of your local bookstores. And this book covers the topic of the origin of COVID-19, which still a consensus has not been reached as to the actual origin of the virus that has caused this insane pandemic that has cost so many lives. So I think it's such an important conversation to be had. I was thrilled to be able to talk to Alina directly about her work on this book, and I'm very excited to share it with all of you, and I look forward to your thoughts on this topic. If you haven't already, please click subscribe and leave us a comment wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd also like to give a shout out to our sponsor, Kendall Investor Relations. Thank you so much for listening and supporting this show. So today it is my honor to welcome debut author of Viral, Alina Chan. She's also a postdoc at the Broad Institute, and she's been a pioneer in the hunt for the origins of COVID-19 and has written a wonderful book. I really commend you on your bravery in this space and taking the time out of what I'm sure is your busy research life to write such an important uh, text. So thank you for joining us today, Alina. Thanks for having me on The Lady Scientist. So the book, uh, I have my copy here. <laughs> oh, <laughs> beautiful cover, by the way, came out on Thursday, I believe, November 18th. Uh, actually, on, on the 16th, on Tuesday, it was okay. a pretty soft launch. Uh, but yeah, I have to thank the publishers for finding such a nice cover designer. Yeah, it's beautiful. So what has life been like since the book came out? Uh, it, it's been hectic ever since I got into the origins of COVID-19 issues. So just lots of unpredictable things happening. Um, but on the book, I have to say one of the most satisfying things is uh, hearing positive feedback uh, from other scientists. So I've had a lot of scientists reach out privately and, and say that they were blown away by the book. Uh, they never knew all these things were happening, uh, what types of SARS like research was happening, uh, how uh, scientists managed to link the origin of SARS-1 uh, to the wildlife trade so quickly two decades ago, whereas uh, how difficult it is to link it to the wildlife trade today. Yeah, I. one of the things I really appreciated about the book is it weaves together and combines so many of these different, you know, research and detective hunts that have been going on online, uh, Twitter conversations, grants that were released, kind of information on the U.S. intelligence side as far as how we're understanding, you know, what information we know or don't know. Um, so I really commend you and Matt on, on what you've put together. And I think for anyone who's interested in understanding how this pandemic came about, even if we're not at a point where we can make a conclusive uh, statement around where it came from. I think a lot of the background research to understanding this space is included in the book. So it's really a great resource. So at the start of Viral, you talk about a paper that you co-authored with Dr. Jean and Dr. Deverman. 
exploring the fact that SARS-CoV-2 at the beginning of the pandemic was already relatively transmissible across humans. And that was a somewhat surprising finding. Can you share with us how that paper came about? So at the time in early 2020, we were in a kind of lockdown. So we were trapped at home uh, and really just puzzling about this, this new outbreak of a novel coronavirus. And a lot of scientists really wanted to do something to to do their part in, in trying to figure out this virus. So Xing and I, uh, Dr. Chan and I were busy looking into the biology of the virus. And I was just devouring a large amount of information about uh, SARS viruses and coronaviruses. And one day uh, in March, I read a news article that said SARS-CoV-2 is genetically stable. So this virus was not picking up new adaptive mutations to make it more transmissible in humans. and that well, was a red flag for me. Because in the case of SARS-1, despite the much less advanced technology, scientists had put together this picture of a stepwise adaptation of that virus to human beings. So they could see with each new mutation as it, trans uh, as it transmitted from uh, animals to humans and amongst humans, it was getting better and affecting humans. And that period is missing in SARS-CoV-2. So Xing and I were so excited. We wanted to write this up immediately. Um, and Soon enough, we, we put a preprint up, but we we then realized that there were several other independent groups of scientists, including some very prominent scientists who had in parallel come to the same conclusion based on different approaches, whether it was just looking at the protein structure of the virus or whether they compared to SARS-1 even, or um, just, just they, they all reached this point that they realized that this virus, SARS-CoV-2, when it was detected in Wuhan in December 2019, it was already well adapted. So even the World Health Organization says then that this virus was well adapted to humans. And this paper, this, this bioarchive preprint was really the entryway for your relationship with Matt and he had come across the preprint and that was what inspired his article around the origins kind of early on in the pandemic. Can you talk about the beginning of that relationship and, and how that kind of formed? So Matt and I first connected after he had reached out to Xing, who was the first author of our paper, the preprint, uh, to, to get more information on, on what we meant by the virus being well adapted for humans. And so I had started chatting with Matt just through email and I'd done this for many other journalists, actually, a lot of them had questions about this virus and where it came from. So over time, uh, we, we shared a lot of information and by uh, late 2020, Matt reached out to me asking whether I wanted to co-write a book with him on the origin of COVID-19. Uh, and this had been after we had uh, looked at so many discoveries made by not just Xing and I, but, but several like uh, international uh, citizen sleuths or scientists who, who stepped up and would actively looking for information that could shed light on the origin. And, and when Matt suggested this, I actually wasn't sure. And I debated this for the next several months. And finally, in May, we decided, okay, let's do this. And we signed the book deal and we went public with it. Wow. May of this year. Yeah. And so you wrote this book in just Record several... time. Wow. <laughs> L lots of not sleeping. So actually, one thing that worked out for us was that Matt is five hours ahead of me. Mm -hmm. So we could bounce chapters back and forth. Uh, like I would write while he was sleeping and he would write while I'm sleeping. So like, every morning there was a new 
thing to, to work on a very intense period of time. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. It's amazing how efficiently a writing process like that can work out. What was it like writing your, because this is your debut book, correct? Yeah. Writing it with such an experienced author like Matt. Yeah, I think I had to rely on, on Matt a lot and we, we brought complementary strengths to this issue. So, so for me, just having a, a very deep technical understanding of a lot of the work being conducted in the space on, on SARS-like viruses uh, and Matt being such an amazing science writer, like just well known for his books, Genome, like some of my friends have told me that his book Genome was the reason why they became a scientist. Mm -hmm. So I, I was super blown away when he when he even wanted to co-write this book with me because I thought that he could have just written it without me. Um, but I'm really glad that he he did reach out to me. Um, and the book is extremely robust. So that if you if you read the book, you'll see that I think some like one seventh of it is is citations. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like fact checking. So we want to we wanted readers to be able to fact check anything. So like if they see mm -hmm. something and they're like, is this real? They can immediately go to the citation section and, and go to the source and see for themselves. Wow, really impressive. I want to get into a few of the findings that happened over the course of, you know, this past year and over the course of the discovery and research that you had to do to put together this book. What were some of the most surprising pieces of information that came out for you? So some of the most surprising information came uh, in the fall of this year. So finally, all of these documents uh, that showed what type of research was happening in Wuhan in the years leading up to the pandemic, they were finally released or obtained via uh, leaks or via Freedom of Information Act. And so they, they told us that uh, there was an unprecedented scale of SARS-like virus collection and characterization and experimentation happening uh, in Wuhan, um, and that some of these experiments could have plausibly led to the emergence of SARS-CoV-2 in Wuhan city. Um, but the internet sleuths, we tell their stories in the book too, and, and there's so many of them. And we, we kind of regret not being able to put everyone's stories in the book, otherwise it would be double the length. Um, but we picked some of them and uh, they, they had found uh, this incredible uh, like link between SARS-CoV-2's closest relatives uh, to a mine in, in Yunnan province in South China, where in 2012, six men were infected with a mysterious pneumonia and half of them died. And there was a medical thesis that concluded that they had been infected with SARS-like viruses in this mine. And they had consulted the best experts, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology, to to have this thesis published. So for us, uh, it's pretty shocking that when SARS-CoV-2 emerged in late 2019 in Wuhan, the scientists who knew about all this stuff, all these links to mysterious pneumonia and the types of dangerous research being conducted, they, they didn't tell us because that could have changed the course of the pandemic entirely. You know, imagine if instead of telling people, don't worry, it's from a wildlife trade again, it's just from more civets again, you told them actually, this might be a lab accident. I feel like the response to this novel coronavirus would have been like 100% different. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it really is pretty shocking, the lack of transparency and kind of knowledge share that has not really, you know, it just hasn't happened. And um, it leaves you wondering how 
things would have played out differently potentially. Um, you touched on the internet sleuths and I want to maybe highlight one or two of the stories you share in viral. Um, you talked about a particular, I think, uh, software engineer, perhaps, uh, Ribera from, from Spain. Who, uh, Francisco de, de Rivera. Yes, Francisco de Rivera, who, I mean, it's pretty impressive what he was able to track down on his own. He had this massive spreadsheet where he was tracking all of these sequencing samples. And was he the person who uncovered some of these medical theses that you referred to earlier? So the thesis were mostly uncovered by another internet sleuth, The Seeker. Uh, mm -hmm. who is in India, um, but uh, Francisco played a huge role. So he later also helped to analyze and translate some of these newer theses that were actually obtained from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, from the, the lab that was working on bad coronaviruses. And Francisco is really a force of nature. I'd say that he has been so conscientious in cataloging and IDing all of the viruses published by the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that he effectively showed us that after 2016, we have no insight. We have barely any insight into any of the viruses they collected after that date. So there's this window between 2016 and 2019. We have no idea what viruses were sent or collected by the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, so without his work, I, I just don't know where we would be. And I hope that future investigations, like uh, organized official formal investigations, will bring in the internet sleuths who've put in so much time, like thousands of hours into researching the origin of COVID-19. A big thing that comes up a lot throughout viral is the fact that there was this uh, viral database that went offline, I believe it was in September of 2019. Yes. Do you think, I mean, just speculating, do you think we'll ever be able to see that database or do you think it's gone forever? If they had shared that database in the first months of the pandemic, they wouldn't have created so much trouble for themselves. But now, even if they shared it, I'm sure a lot of people, including myself, would be worried that we cannot authenticate it. So if mm -hmm. there have been edits made two years later, like how, how can we tell? So yeah. it's it's about the timing as well, right? So like they, some of the scientists in the story who had access to these databases, knew about the types of research that were happening, they don't want to share it. They wait until they're compelled to, until mm -hmm. there's no choice, until they've been forced by leaks or Freedom of Information Act. So this doesn't inspire public trust in science. And I think that yeah. that is really damaging to all of the scientists and society. Absolutely. I'm curious for yourself, how some of these realizations have changed your own relationship with scientific research? So I've, I've been in science for a long time and I've training in, across multiple fields in like medical genetics, biochemistry, synthetic biology, genetic engineering, vector engineering. <laughs> um, I've seen a lot in science. So I'm not under some fantasy impression that science is like perfect and everyone here is a saint. Like that's, that's absolutely not true. <laughs> so I, I don't think there was any particularly rude awakening for me in, in, in watching and experiencing the saga of the search for the origin of COVID-19. Scientists are humans, so we are fallible. We make lots of mistakes. Even, even the best experts have made mistakes. 
like not knowing that this virus was human to human transmissible, not knowing it was airborne, not knowing if masks work, like not, not knowing that vaccinated people can still transmit the virus. Like experts have made mistakes again and again. You have to treat them as humans. They're not like gods. So um, for me, it's a human issue and we, we can't just give give people, especially people with reasonably perceived conflicts of interest, we can't just say we trust them because they are scientists. Like you have to treat them as human being with human like incentives and interests. And flaws, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's such an important point and part of what's, I think, challenging for me and some of the messaging around trust the science and, you know, um, it's, it's been an interesting time in that regard for, for our field. Um, you had this really beautiful call to action towards the end of the book where you mention a meeting that happened among some scientists in 1975, this Asilomar meeting. And you, you, you state that a new Asilomar is vitally needed in the sense that we are now all aware that this gain of function research was being carried out, that the study of potentially very harmful pathogens was going on, perhaps not at proper biosafety levels. And, you know, I think regardless of if it came from a lab or not, it was a wake up call for many people in this field that maybe we need better regulation and, you know, just in order to prevent a potential lab leak from happening in the future, if that, you know. Absolutely. I mean, some of the new released documents from Freedom of Information Act, they've, they've shown us that some pretty questionable experiments were being done, not just with SARS-like viruses from the wild, but even with human pathogen MERS virus. So they were putting parts from Chinese uh, MERS-like viruses into the Middle Eastern human pathogen MERS virus. So I'm like, why? Is this happening? How are we only finding out about this years after the facts? And, you know, like, do we only find out when the outbreak has happened? Like, <laughs> so um, there is a huge need to make this research more transparent and, and safer. And mm -hmm. it, it bothers me that a lot of scientists are resistant to this. So there has actually been a joint letter organized by a major uh, American science society that, that wrote to Congress. It said, don't make any rash decisions on regulating our research. Don't don't make any policy changes just because of assumptions about where this virus might have come from. So they're already preemptively trying to stop people from making the research safer. So I, it it bothers me that we are where we are today is where we were two years ago. Mm -hmm. Like that, there hasn't been any measure taken to make yeah. this research more transparent or safe. And so there hasn't been any discussion as far as you know, as far as planning a meeting, you know, some kind of global international meeting to agree on regulations moving forward. So that just, just a reminder for listeners is that even up till May of this year, lots of scientists were still condemning the lab leak hypothesis as a conspiracy theory. So it hasn't been that long and it's only been about half a year and, and you still read the newspaper and, and like, sorry, not the newspaper, but the websites. <laughs> and and even, even as recent as like two days ago, 
people are still condemning the lab leak theory and saying that the pandemic must have started in the wet market, in the seafood market in Wuhan. So there's a huge amount of resistance to even acknowledging the fact that research could have resulted in this pandemic and that we need to take measures to make it to make this research more transparent. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could do us a favor and kind of summarize just the key facts around the evidence we have for both the wet market and the lab hypotheses for where this virus emerged from. So the, the main thing to know is that there is no definitive evidence. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence for both hypotheses, but that means that one day, if a single piece of definitive evidence shows up, everyone's estimates will be you know, upset. So right now for, for both hypotheses, there are precedents. So there are precedents of, for example, the first SARS virus spilling over from nature through the wildlife trade into humans. But once that virus was studied in labs, it actually leaked six times. So we know that lab leaks are becoming more and more frequent as dozens of labs around the world start to engage in riskier pathogen research. So both of them have that type of evidence, uh, precedental, like historical evidence examples. Uh, we know that there have been novel viruses that were only detected, like Marburg virus, only after it was leaked from a lab. So it, it wasn't from nature that it was detected. It was from a lab where it infected people at three different labs, actually. We know that one of our past pandemics, uh, the H1N1 1977 pandemic, was likely caused by a failure in a lab cause, uh, with a vaccine trial gone wrong. They vaccinated people with virus that later became, became active again and caused a pandemic. So plenty of evidence. Um, and if you look at Wuhan specifically, it's in a place where there's a very low level of wildlife trade but it's still possible. So if you look at the data, it says that on average, about 10 civet cats were sold a month across the entire city. About 30 raccoon dogs were sold across the entire city per month. So there is still like a small trickle of wildlife going into that city, but it's always possible that that could have started the pandemic. On the other hand, you have this lab that's famous for collecting thousands, tens of thousands of samples from animals and humans across eight countries. <laughs> from the wildlife trade, specifically looking for SARS-like viruses. And from the leaked documents or released documents, we see that they were engaging in genetic modifications that might have potentially generated a virus that looks like SARS-CoV-2. So you have, you have these two hypotheses. They're both plausible. It cannot be ruled out because there's no, no dispositive evidence. And so what we really need to focus on now is an investigation, not guessing. So as a scientist, you always try and see what are the questions I should be asking? How can I answer those questions? What are the data I should be collecting? Like, how can I make sure that data is authentic? And, and how can I keep this investigation free of conflicts of interest? Absolutely. I think one of the important points made in the book is the fact that the wildlife or wet market hypothesis has actually been pretty thoroughly investigated, whereas the lab lab leak side has been less so. And I find it somewhat shocking to, to realize that they've tested on the order of tens of thousands of animal samples for this precursor virus and haven't found any positive results. Is that 
correct? Am I am I characterizing that correctly? Yes. So according to the China WHO joint study, they had tested more than 80,000 animal samples. More than half were from animals of wild species, and they found no sign of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, and a recent study published, I think a week ago, uh, on BioArchive, so not peer-reviewed yet, uh, but they showed that they had uh, studied the wildlife trade, so collected more than 2,500 samples from the wildlife trade between 2017 and, and today. And they found no sign of SARS-like viruses at all in China. So they couldn't find any sign of these viruses. It was not at a detectable level. Uh, and they weren't even looking in, in like further northern parts of China. They were looking in the hot spots of China. They were looking where you expect these viruses to spill over and they found nothing. And so if you look at the totality of data to date, the only SARS-2-like viruses found in the wildlife trade are limited to just only three pangolin coronaviruses. And we know from a very detailed study of Wuhan wildlife cells that there were no bats or pangolins sold in that city. So we're just stuck at this point where what is the link between the wildlife trade and SARS-CoV-2? The, the, only, the only tenuous link there is that there is a wildlife market in Wuhan that sells like a few animals from the wildlife trade. It's, it's still plausible that the wildlife trade resulted in SARS-CoV-2, but so far, all of these investigations, as you said, like very thorough investigations have come up empty. They found nothing. And I want to understand a little bit better the idea of an index patient. Can you share some of the murkiness around why we don't fully understand who the first infections were and where they were co-located? So the first thing to do when there's a novel outbreak happening is to contact trace. And many countries, including China, have demonstrated their capabilities for doing that. So the moment they, they see there's a sick COVID patient, they're like, contact trace the hell out of this person. Like find out who their families were, who, where they work, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, just trying to find the original source of the infection. Like which country did it come from? Had they just traveled into the region? But surprisingly, that work either wasn't done for, for the COVID-19 outbreak in Wuhan, or they did it and are not sharing the information with us. And so right now, the China WHO joint study insists that there were no patients before early December 2019 in Wuhan. That's like completely unbelievable. So <laughs> this, this, this city housed the world's most best experts in tracking SARS-like origins. Like the lab there, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, was famous for tracking these novel coronavirus outbreaks. So even with that, they're saying that they couldn't find any earlier cases than December 2019. Like it's just flies against all of the genetic and epidemiological evidence out there. Like a lot of experts predict that this outbreak in Wuhan must have started no later than November 2019. Some estimate as far back as June. Right. So I mean, like it's we're just limited here and Unfortunately, what we've seen last last week is that scientists who I would characterize as, as desperate for answers have have obsessed over the December cases. So they're like, who was the first person to de develop symptoms in, in December? And they think that it is a seafood vendor. So a woman who sold shrimp at the Wuhan, uh, Huanan seafood market. Mm -hmm. So the problem is just because there is a super spreader event at the market 
doesn't mean that there was a raccoon dog there that was sick and gave it to people. So you, you have to do basic contact tracing. So I would say that it is almost a bit negligent to, to announce to the world that you have found the index patient <laughs> who is a seafood vendor when you, when you know that there must be earlier cases and that contact tracing information hasn't been shared. Can you elaborate a little bit on the evidence for why we think there were earlier cases that might have gone back as far as June? So if you look at the genomes, the genomic sequences of the viruses that have been isolated from people in Wuhan or people who traveled from Wuhan in the earliest days of the outbreak, you see that there were several early variants. So uh, the market, the, all of the sequences linked to the market, the virus se sequences there, belong to one lineage called lineage B. And there were other early variants that belong to a different lineage called A. And these were more similar to the bad coronaviruses that SARS-CoV-2 presumably evolved from. So that means that there are some viruses that pre-existed the market. There are some SARS-CoV-2 viruses that infected people before the market. And so if you do that cal back calculation, some people would say it should be between October and November that the outbreak started. So obviously it's not, it's not uh, rock solid. <laughs> so because there's so little information, it's hard to tell exactly when, but most people would say it is definitely at latest November that the outbreak had started. So the earliest cases, there's no way they were in December, 2019, it's too late. Um, especially the, the shrimp, seafood vendor, she only developed symptoms on 11 December. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's impossible that she's the earliest case. I'd, I'd, I'd also argue that she's probably not the earliest known case because there are reports in the news of other people who were informed that they got COVID and they developed symptoms in November in Wuhan. So a lot more investigation to be done. Um, I think that uh, the, the best solution is to systematically interview everyone who was in Wuhan at the time. We heard that there were US, uh, US doctors who were actually working in Wuhan in December 2019 and that they had heard about this mysterious pneumonia in mid-December 2019. So have they been interviewed? Because they could tell us a lot about what was happening in those early days, uh, rather than us trying to do a mind palace like reconstruction of, of what was happening based on archive news websites. You've touched on some of the lack of transparency, the media's relationship with this story and how that's evolved. There's obviously been a lot of censorship of information in this space. Can you walk us through some of the hardships that have been caused as a result of companies like Facebook not even allowing information share around this topic? So I would say that there are a lot of flaws in the uh, news news and scientific journal system that were exploited during this pandemic. Um, whether intentionally or not, a lot of places shut down uh, any mention of a lab origin, even accidental was off the table. So even, even the scientists accidentally catching the virus during field work or in the lab was off the table, was counted as a conspiracy. So we, we have to learn from this lesson. So I, I, I don't think we need to go back and like, you know, hold people accountable necessarily, but we have to learn. So how do we strengthen our reporting and scientific research system so that the next time there's an outbreak of ambiguous origins, we don't immediately shut down one plausible hypothesis as a conspiracy theory? Absolutely. 
Why do you think, I mean, because I, I, I had my own, you know, relationship with this story as it evolved. Why do you think so many were quick to label it as conspiracy? So there were some prominent scientific letters that were written early in the pandemic. One of them was in The Lancet in February 2020, saying that they condemn the conspiracy theories that suggest this virus doesn't have a natural origin. Uh, another one in Nature Medicine called The Proximal Origin of SARS-CoV-2. It says we believe no lab-based scenarios are plausible. And a, and a press release following that said that they could rule out all lab-based scenarios. So when you have all these prominent scientists, some of whom control the funding <laughs> of research, saying that anyone who raises a lab origin is a conspiracy theorist or like anti-science or, or, or just flat out like crazy, then then who, who wants to be that person? Who wants to be the lightning rod? So unfortunately, I hadn't read the Lancet letter. So <laughs> I would say that I when I wrote my preprint, I wasn't I wasn't really aware that there was such a strong uh you know reluctance in the scientific community to talk about this. I, I had actually read the proximal origin paper and thought that they wanted to have a discussion. I thought they wanted to have a real scientific discussion. We submitted our preprint nature medicine. They said it was not competitive and they, did, they didn't even send out for peer review. So I, it was only later that I realized that people are really trying to not say anything about the lab leak. They don't want to publish any articles about this. Yeah, the... The challenges presented by, you know, scientific publications during this time and how that played into the ongoing narrative are really interesting and I think are a really important aspect of, of your book. So I, I think it's important that we're shedding light on this problem that, you know, there is research that um, has knowledge that should be shared in a timely fashion and isn't always, you know, included even for whatever reason a, a previous bias i think there was one story you mentioned where the editor didn't believe that there weren't any bats or pangolins for sale is that correct yes getting... so that was a really shocking uh twist in in the search for the origin of covid 19 is that in june of this year more than a year and a half since the pandemic started finally a study was published showing the data counting the number of wild animals sold in wuhan markets and so this was the one that showed that there are about 10 civet cats sold per month across that city uh and the reason why they were so held up was because at the first journal they went to the editor said there's no way that there were no bats or pangolins at the market. So just because of this, just the, the lack of openness in the scientific publication system, it held back this important data, you know, stuff that could have really made a huge difference in the early days of the pandemic. So while this paper languished under peer review, the whole world went bonkers over pangolins. Like, even though there were no pangolins to be found in that city, just everyone was like, it must have come from a pangolin. And this, this pangolin mania carried on for most of 2020. It's just, um, I think it shows a major flaw in, in the scientific system. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I want to take a moment to acknowledge the bravery of publishing something like this and also just your ongoing voice and approach to bringing attention to this topic online. I think it's a hard 
space to hold consistently and obviously probably brings you under a really challenging lens to be under. You tweeted recently that some people have advised you to even change your name out of concern for your safety. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your experience with being under this type of uh, microscope. Well, this question is particularly polarizing on a political level, on a scientific level, even on a personal level, it affects some people. So they, um, it has attracted a lot of like meanness and, and like scariness. So especially as a woman, I think some, some of the, the messages that you get are pretty creepy. So, <laughs> but, um, I mean, you, you have to have a thick skin with this, right? So like, uh, you have to just let these mean or, or uh, really terrible messaging, just, just let them roll over you. <laughs> or you, you get really freaked out when you get them, but after a few days, you, you can't continue being scared forever. Um, yeah, I've, I've had friends and family tell me that this is super dangerous for me. Uh, they worry about me being like, you know, disappeared or abducted or like harmed in some way, not necessarily even by the Chinese government, but by people who might have very strong emotional responses to this topic. Um, and and I, I know some of them. <laughs> and so um, they had suggested to me to change my name potentially, especially when traveling to avoid drawing attention. But I, I honestly, I don't know what to do. And I, I I'm just thinking like one step at a time for myself, but, but for this topic, I know where we need to go. I know that we need to investigate. I know that we need to make the research safer, no matter whether it came from nature or from a lab, we, we need to make pathogen research safer. So my, my thought process is very clear for the, the challenge at hand is the scientific challenge. But for myself, I honestly, it's such a extraordinary situation that I, I haven't had a chance to lay out a roadmap for what to do with myself now. Where where did this strength come from? Did you did you ever see <laughs> in a million years like this in the cards for you as, as a person? I, I don't think anyone could have seen this in my cards or anybody's cards <laughs> in a million years. I mean, a lot of people didn't know the pandemic would unfold this way and be investigated this way. I, I think before COVID-19, a lot of people just thought that we would we wouldn't be this like defenseless. I, I I know that a lot of people say we weren't like super prepared, but but what happened was like an extra level of like vulnerability to pandemics. And so there's, there's no way that we would have predicted that an origin investigation would have completely stalled, that a lab origin would have been shut down as a conspiracy theory. It's very hard to predict these things. And so I also didn't predict that I would be writing a book about this like one year after the pandemic. So. It's, it's been insane. Yeah. I have, I have so many questions, so I'm going to try to, to streamline the rest of our time together. So, so towards the end of the book, you talk about this switch that flipped in May of 2021, where mainstream media really started covering the lab leak hypothesis for the first time. NPR, I think you mentioned, reaches out for the first time. What was it like to experience that switch in people's minds? I was really puzzled. Like I was shocked because I'd spent the past year basically being hounded as a conspiracy theorist compared to QAnon and insur insurrectionists. 
and and so I was I was in a pretty dark period honestly I I and I also tweeted about this I I was really despairing that anyone would pay serious attention uh, to a lab origin in in the leadership and actually initiate like an investigation I I was pretty uh, I was getting pretty hopeless about this like and then suddenly in May, I think I think it was Nick Wade's like article. A lot of people attributed to his article uh, on Medium and the Bulletin Atomic, uh, where he he lays out his best uh, argument for lab origin and uh, a very famous virologist, Nobel Prize laureate uh, David Baltimore, gave him a comment saying that he thought there was a smoking gun for an genetically genetically engineered origin of the virus and i think that blew the internet up <laughs> and so a lot of people were starting to to turn but in in the background there was also this science magazine letter that i had co-signed with 17 other scientists uh, and it was published i think on may 14 um calling for an investigation into both natural and lab origins and i heard that that letter before it was published had already been shared widely with leadership and and so it had even influenced the White House to issue that announcement uh, to ask the intelligence community to investigate and come back with, with, with a report in 90 days. So there were there were a lot of things happening in that in that month, like just turning the tide. Right, and then there was another kind of big announcement around the the DARPA grant that was released in August, I believe. Which again, I'm curious for you, like how do these different things stack up for you with regards to how you're thinking about the potential for a lab leak like David Baltimore of course famous comment around the codon usage of the fear and cleavage site being mm -hmm. a potential smoking gun but what what for you do you find to be the most compelling evidence at this point I get criticized for this a lot, but I, I have to say that this is very important, is that the scientists who knew about the type of risky research they were conducting didn't tell us anything. Like it had to be pulled out of them. So it's it's a half science and half human issue here that when the virus emerged, they didn't tell us that they were working with nine of the closest relatives all collected from a place where half of the people infected with a mysterious virus had died from pneumonia. And then they didn't tell us that they were inserting novel genetic modifications into novel SARS-like virus, the, the exact type of genetic modification that is unique to SARS-2. They didn't tell us that they had been bringing in thousands of samples across eight countries into Wuhan, both, both human and animal. So it's just all of this information, the missing database, so it's just, it's just shocking. They were trying to prevent a pandemic. So why is it that when a pandemic happens, suddenly all of their hard work cannot be accessed? So to me, it's just really hard to reconcile. And I, there's something wrong here. There's something very seriously wrong here. And I think it, it doesn't require you to be a scientist to acknowledge that fact. So um, I'm not saying that this virus came from a lab, although I do lean towards it now based on all the things I've seen. And if you read the book, you will see why. <laughs> I still think that natural origin should be counted as plausible, but we've investigated that a lot and it's all come up empty. So now how about we investigate the lab origin and see if it also comes up empty. So um, for me, I I think it's this combination of, of, of facts of not having any evidence despite investigating for natural origin uh, and all this smokiness around the lab origin, all this circumstantial evidence building up showing 
just just what are the odds that a virus like SARS-CoV-2 would emerge in the very city where there was a lab working on that type of viruses doing that type of genetic modification. And so not not any virus emerged. It was SARS-CoV-2. It wasn't like some Nipah or like Tickborn virus or something that evolved <laughs> that came out that it was it was a SARS-CoV-2 virus coming from a place where there was a lab working with SARS-like viruses. So I know that was a lot. <laughs> no, that's good. It's just yeah. In an ideal situation, what type of investigation would you love to see happen? So an investigation should ideally be international. So having uh, partners from many countries so that you can't discount it as like a US centric or biased investigation. Uh, it should also be very facts based and, and, and look to a wide variety of sources. So not just genetic sequences, but open source intelligence, like archive web pages, news reports, that kind of thing. It should bring in multiple types of investigators. So not even just scientists, not even just people with biosecurity expertise versus infectious diseases expertise, but even data analysts, people who are really good at finding information like hidden away. Um, it should be as transparent as possible. So I know that we have to respect the privacy of some individuals, um, and the way to do that is to make sure that your team is balanced and credible, that it is trustworthy. So don't bring anyone in with conflicts of interest. Don't bring anyone in who has called one hypothesis a conspiracy theory. Um, and and just, just uh, I think transparency is very important. So that, that is how I would evaluate a, uh, a credible investigation. Do you think that transparency will be possible in the next couple of years based on how China has worked or not worked with other countries with regards to this type of investigation? I think that there are a lot of pieces of this puzzle that are scattered around the earth, like around around all of the countries, like many of the countries. There are people who know about the type of research that was happening in Wuhan leading up to 2019. So, it's kind of shocking that there hasn't been a systematic interviewing process yet to ask them, do you know about this database? Do you have a copy, earlier copy? Do you have any count of how many samples you sent up to Wuhan in the past few years from the wildlife trade, that kind of thing. So that has to happen. Um, I, I do think that transparency is possible. And, and that's why picking the team is really important because if you, if you pick people that the public already doesn't trust, like the public thinks that they are covering up and things like that, you're just gonna completely discredit the investigation, like no matter what, it cannot be seen as a trustworthy investigation. Um, I, I do think that there are many routes to investigate. So China was not a sealed up black box, like especially in the early days, like tens of thousands of messages must have been sent out to friends and family collaborators and things like that, doctors and scientists outside of Wuhan. So all those pieces have to be brought back in and, and put in one place so they could be evaluated together. Absolutely. You come, you come across in the book um, pointing towards one person in particular and one organization in particular, and I just want to ask about that. So Peter Dasak, who you alluded to as someone who wrote or put together this Lancet article that called the lab leak hypothesis uh, conspiracy and was then subsequently involved in a WHO investigation of 
the origins of COVID and as far as I can tell is still carrying on as, uh, you know, the head of EcoHealth um, Alliance, which of course is one of the organizations that's been funding this type of gain of function research and collecting viruses and, and studying them in the ways that Alina has talked about over the course of this interview. What, what is your relationship like just mentally with this person in this organization based on everything that you know today? Well, I have to say, I'm just bewildered by him, by, by Peter Dashek and the Equal Health Alliance. So they've shown us just time and time again that they are very confused. Like they will, they'll say something is a conspiracy theory. They'll say like conspiracy theorists are saying that bats were kept in Wuhan or in, in Wuhan labs, or they'll say it's a conspiracy theory that furine cleavage sites were being inserted in labs into SARS-like viruses. And then like, boom, like <laughs> sometimes not even within weeks, they'll be shown to be like, very confused that actually their own data, their own reports show that these things were happening. <laughs> so even even very recently, they tried to deny that samples have been collected from Laos and sent up to Wuhan as part of their research collaboration. And then like they, they just had a report released showing that they did exactly that. So, I mean, I, I almost think that people should just ask them for the data. Just just ask them to hand over all their communications and data so someone else who's less confused can look at it and, and tell us objectively what, what's happening in that. So in this case, I'm not saying that they should make it public, but have a have a credible investigation team and let those people who are balanced look at all of the communications and documents and let them tell the public then. Was there evidence in here that SARS-CoV-2 might have come from that research? Does that need to come from the government or or the Biden administration, do you think? I suspect it will require a lot of government influence. So maybe not the government, but they would need some influence. This, this team of investigators would need the government's influence to extract that information. Absolutely. So I'm curious, I mean, this just, this whole process of investigation on your part and writing this book seems really transformational and I'm curious what's next for you and how you view your work moving forward is is writing in the cards down the road or are you are you getting back to focusing on the science like how are you thinking about your future so I I never unfocused from the science so I, I have a day job that I I super love and and I I think I'm working with the best like scientific team ever. So um, even though I was writing this book, I was still doing my full-time job. And if you ask like scientists in Boston, they will tell you that rather than cutting back on work, they just keep piling it on. So you have a plate that already has a mountain of work, you keep adding it until you're completely burnt out. <laughs> but I mean, for me, it helped knowing that there was an end date for this book that we had to hand it off in September. So I was like, I can do this. I, I can write for eight hours straight after after work every day. <laughs> Sometimes sleeping at like 4 a.m. and things like that for several days in a row. Um, but having that end inside was really helpful. And I did it out of a sense of, of duty to the future because I just knew that if I didn't do what I could to get the facts about this origin of COVID out to the public, what happens if another pandemic like this occurs in the next five to 50 years, let's say? 
I will be old at that time. I might lose someone to that future pandemic. So would I really kick myself for not doing something today, telling people we need to make this research safer, we need to hold people accountable, we need to investigate to set a precedent? Would I would I really be mad at myself at that point? And so now I I'd say I'm returning to work, but I never left. <laughs> like I, I want to to spend that extra eight hours after work working on my work now. <laughs> um I uh I, I think it has been transformational. I wouldn't have met so many of these amazing scientists and journalists and citizen like investigators uh, unless I had looked into the origin of COVID-19. Um, but I, I do want to go back to my, my real life, <laughs> my, my, main, um, my main job, yeah. Absolutely. As we wrap up, is there anything you want to give a shout out to? Where where can folks find viral or order it today? And um, just really anything, any advice you want to leave us with or, or links that we should mention? Oh, yeah. Um, so you can buy the book on Amazon, but you can also buy it in many of your local bookstores. So uh, you can go to the HarperCollins site and figure out in your country where which box, bookstores you can buy the book from. Um, I really hope that this book will be a resource and, and motivation for the public and also for experts, for scientists to really sit up and think like, okay, there's, there's so much circumstantial evidence for a lab origin and also some circumstantial evidence for a natural origin, but to set a precedent for the future so that the next time this happens, people know that they can't just get away scot-free for, for withholding information, for, for shutting down scientific discourse. like. I, I wrote the book with that objective. So I, I hope that it has a mobilizing, like a galvanizing effect on, on readers. Absolutely. And, and I think also for, for writers like yourself, just being able to own your voice and, and own the data that exists and communicate that in such an important way, it really reminded me of the importance of books even just like as yes. a baby. <laughs> like the fact that you can use your voice to um, contribute to the conversation, I think is a really important thing to teach others, right? Yeah, so that was a major consideration for me to, before I decided on co-writing this book with Matt Ridley, is that all these things I've tweeted, like I've tweeted something like 15,000 times <laughs> over the past year and a half. Um, and the, even the news articles I've been interviewed in or, or even co-wrote, like the media has such a fickle memory has like, and, and social media has like constant amnesia, like things are hot for a few days and then nobody reads them ever again. But with a book, you can put everything down. It's in a tome and it's going to go on forever. So people can always pick up this book and be like, this, this is a record. This is a very detailed record of what we knew at that time. So for me, it was a huge, like, uh, motivation to write this book. Awesome. Well, I, again, commend you on, on all of the, the work you put into this writing after, after work every day. And I, I think it's amazing to have it out. And, and I hope everybody goes and, and buys a copy because I really think it's one of the most important books that that's been published this year. And I think it's an important record, like you said, of, of all of the turmoil we've been through and kind of all of the different players in this uh, scientific space and in this hunt for the origins of COVID. So thank you, Alina, and also to your co-author, Matt. And 
it's been awesome to share your experiences and your thoughts with, with our listeners. So thank you for, for joining us today. Thanks, Jocelyn. That wraps up my interview with Alina Chan. Alina, thank you so much for taking the time today. I learned so much from our conversation. To all our listeners out there, I really encourage you to go out and get a copy of Viral and read it. Let me know what you think. I'm so curious for your thoughts. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Lady Scientist Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and supporting our show.